Um, well, hello, hello uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome you all uh, 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 to LSE. Um, this is uh, a Department of Management public lecture, and my name is Saul Estrin. I'm a professor here in the management department. Uh, we're terribly pleased to be hosting this event and, and of course, extremely uh, proud to be uh, able to welcome Julia Gillard back to LSE. Uh, I think you're probably all aware, given how full the room is during exam time, that, uh, 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 that Julia was um, Prime Minister of Australia uh, 2010 to 2013 uh, um, uh, and broke the, the, a glass ceiling with that, being the first woman uh, to have that role. Uh, um, for those of you who are interested in that particular chapter of uh, Julia's uh, career, uh, she, she gave a fascinating account of her time uh, uh, in office uh, on this very stage two years ago, um, and uh, there's a podcast, a really rather good podcast of, uh, of this event available on our, on our website. But we're not going to be talking about those issues tonight. Uh, this is not a, about her time in politics. This is about, this evening is about uh, investment in education, an issue that I think has always been very close to her heart. During her university years, she, she became involved in education issues and was elected as the Education Vice President of the Australian uh, Union of Students. Uh, she obviously was spent a long time uh, in public service, uh, and now uh, um, she stood back from that. Uh, well, during that period, she was very involved in promoting... Um, education reform at a, a variety of levels, including she established uh, the, uh, the national curriculum in Australia. Um, now uh, her work goes far beyond the um, boundaries of Australia. Uh, she's chair of the board of directors of the Global Partnership of Education. Uh, it's an organization supporting the provision of education, uh, um, for basic education in, in 65 countries, developing countries. And she's fighting for the futures of some of the world's most disadvantaged children. Um, she's going to be joined on stage tonight by Pauline Rose, who's a professor of international education at Cambridge. Uh, um, she's director of research for Equitable Access and Learning Centre, and um, she's a research fellow also in the UK's DFID. So we're very pleased that she's going to be joining us this evening, and she's going to, uh, after uh, Julia has spoken, she's going to take uh, act as a discussion and take the... Uh, conversation on rather further. Well, this is more or less the end of my uh, little introduction. A few um, uh, housekeeping rules. Um, um, Julia's going to speak, I guess, around 25 minutes, uh, and I think uh, Professor Rose will speak for about 10 minutes. Um, and if you could all hold your questions back, um, you'll then have an opportunity uh, to, to put questions directly um, to Julia, uh, I'll, I'll chair that, and I'll, I'll call people um, to speak. Uh, when you do, when you, when I point at you, if you could actually say, you know, who you are and where you come from, it sort of helps, I think, the conversation. Um, um, those of you who want to take this conversation online, the Twitter hashtag is probably here somewhere, um, or maybe it isn't. Well, there you go. It's uh, hashtag uh, LSE Education. Um, could I please ask everyone to it's put their phone? Oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> I knew it would be there somewhere. Um, um, could I ask everyone please to put their phones on silent so as to not to uh, disrupt things? Um, the evening's events, as you can probably see from the cameras, is, is being recorded. 
uh, and uh, it'll be appearing on the uh, brand new uh, LSE website, assuming no problems, uh, very, very shortly, so you can uh, relive the experience again and again. Uh, for now, can I ask you please to join me in welcoming the Honourable Julia Gillard to the stage. Thank you very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, one and all, can I acknowledge particularly uh, Professor Saul and Professor Pauline. Uh, I'm uh, in the presence of greatness here on this stage. I'm delighted that they're here with me tonight. And can I particularly acknowledge the students of LSE in the audience. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I was going to start tonight's uh, speech with a joke about London weather. And I, in, in preparing this joke, I had looked at the long-range forecast for London when I was in Australia and it showed that it was going to be freezing here. So I was going to start by saying, you know, it's great to be in London coming into summer where the temperature is even lower than my hometown of Adelaide that is going into winter. But... The long-range forecast has not done me any favours with my humour, uh, so I'm just going to start by saying what a delightful day to be in London. <laughs> uh, somewhat unexpected. Uh, I was going to then top that off with a kind of cheesy reference to no matter the London weather, thank you for the warmth of your welcome, but really you are too smart an audience to insult like that, but it is great to be here. And it's particularly to be, it's a privilege to be here at the London School of Economics, which is rightly proud of its academic rigour, its global focus and its world-leading research. And it feels absolutely right to come to a great institution like this, a great institution of learning, to talk about education. And as a result, tonight I intend to focus my remarks on the challenge of ensuring every child on the planet gets to go to a quality school. And this is, as you've heard, a, a cause that's close to my heart and one I'm honoured to have the opportunity to pursue as Chair of the Global Partnership for Education. But it would be remiss if I failed to take this opportunity to say a very big thank you to LSE, I was grateful that I was able in June 2015 to serve briefly as a senior visiting fellow at your Institute for Public Affairs in order to participate in the Above the Parapet project, which focused on women's experience in leadership. It was prescient research uh, given 2016 would see your nation again being led by a woman and it would be a year in which the US presidential election would be fought with gender so much to the fore. Now, while this is happening by accident, not by de design, my LSE visits seem to bring me to the UK at critical political moments. That 2015 visit occurred in the aftermath of that year's general election, which had redrawn the electoral map with a catastrophic defeat for British Labor, while the Scottish National Party was delighting in its surge. This visit, of course, is only a few short, frantic weeks of campaigning away from another election day. And the time in between has been filled with deep, filled with deep questions and political intensity. The world watched as Scotland voted to stay in the United Kingdom. The world gasped in surprise when the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. 
Such high political drama has not just been confined to the UK. Democracies around the world are being roiled by new forces leading to unpredictable outcomes. These forces include rising inequality within nations, the reshaping of work by new technology, digital disruption and faster, more efficient transport technologies. Our world of rapid change is also one tinged with anxiety. As anyone living in a city like London or Paris or Berlin knows, the risk of terrorism is very real, whether foreign or locally grown. Many nations, including this one, have also felt the impact of record numbers of people around the world forcibly displaced by war or fleeing great hardship. Among them are 21.3 million refugees, half of whom are under the age of 18. Significantly, as all of this is happening, how we access information has entirely changed in ways that can empower us but can also enable fake news to thrive or actual news to be presented in more hyped up partisan ways. All this means that politics is increasingly framed as a contest between those who accept globalisation, indeed feel its benefits and embrace diversity and have the skills to adapt to change, and those who feel left behind and hanker for simpler times in more homogenous communities. Think of how the constituency for and against Brexit have been characterised and analysed. Think how differently this great global city of London voted from those who live in the valleys of my birthplace of Wales. And yes, I was born in Wales, though I know there's not much Welsh lilt left in my voice. Um, today, against this backdrop of fragmented, even fractious community sentiment, I want to discuss with you why I think we can still forge an important new political consensus around solving a global problem. And that problem is the global learning crisis, which today means that there are 263 million children of primary and secondary school age who are out of school and out of hope. In addition, it is estimated that there are an additional 130 million children who can barely read or write, even though they are attending primary school. Without immediate and radical action to invest more in education, over half of the world's upcoming youth generation, 825 million of the 1.6 billion young people who will be alive in 2030, will simply not be equipped to work and thrive in the 21st century. The ones who miss out will be defined by pre-existing patterns of poverty. On current trends in low-income countries, by 2030, only one in 10 children will acquire basic secondary education skills. The vast majority, nine out of 10, will be lucky to complete primary school. Even in middle-income countries, less than half of all children will acquire minimum secondary school skills. Yet, the jobs of tomorrow will require higher skill levels than today, given it is estimated two billion jobs will be lost to new technology by 2050. This divergence between skills acquired and skills required could create a cycle of joblessness, poverty and despair if we keep plodding along our current path. Condemning hundreds of millions of children to a dismal future, regardless of their aptitude, 
is a huge injustice, a violation of basic human rights, and it poses significant risks. Indeed, inequality and joblessness, especially among young people, have been cited for several years in a row as top global risk factors by the World Economic Forum. The Mo Ibrahim Foundation recently published a report called Africa at a Tipping Point, which provides a clear analysis of the implications of the continent's rapidly growing youth population. Its warning is stark. Africa could reap a demographic dividend from the energy and talent of its young people, or it could fail to educate them, and as a result see significant economic losses, armed conflict, brain drain, and social and political unrest. I hardly need to remind this audience here at LSE of the connection between higher levels of education and economic growth. But to put some dimensions around it, we know a dollar invested in a child's education in a low-income country generates more than $5 in additional gross earnings annually, even after taking costs into account and allowing for the variable quality of education. In lower middle-income countries, the rate of return is $2.50 for every dollar invested. If the quality of that education improves, then the rates of return are even higher. If you still need convincing, individual earnings rise by about 10% for each additional year of schooling a child receives. And if every child in low-income countries were able to complete secondary school by 2030, income per capita would increase by 75%. On these numbers alone, education is obviously a good investment and is the clearest pathway for nations to leave poverty and aid dependence behind. So I am pleased that LSE, which obviously has a knack for scooping up former Prime Ministers, has joined with Oxford University to create a commission on state fragility, growth and development, chaired by David Cameron. I'm sure that this work will bring new insights on how to foster growth in fragile states, but I'm equally confident it will end up identifying quality education as a foundation stone of economic advancement. But as we know from our own societies, while education matters for economic growth, it matters for so much more. We know, for example, that education is a significant determinant of the peace and stability of societies. Higher levels of schooling, provided opportunities to learn are equitably shared, can significantly cut the risk of conflict. Youth without education are at greater risk of recruitment by rebel groups, and we know that a major motivating factor for Syrian families seeking refuge in Europe and elsewhere is access to education for their children. So if we want to reduce armed conflict and stem irregular migration flows, equitable access to quality education is essential. It's now also crystal clear that education improves health outcomes. Better educated populations make healthier choices for themselves and for their families. Should an epidemic strike, higher education levels make it easier for communities to understand what is happening and abide by health warnings. We know education is a preventative factor in the spread of HIV, especially for girls. Every additional year of secondary school significantly reduces a girl's risk of contracting the virus. 
An educated mother is also much more likely to marry later and have fewer children, to vaccinate her children and to have them sleep under mosquito nets to prevent malaria. And of course, there are huge economic benefits to be gained from women entering the workforce and nations utilising the talents and potential of the whole population. Indeed, education is the bedrock of women's economic empowerment. Given the many and varied benefits of education, it is saddening and gallingly irrational to see that aid to education from the world's richest nations dropped from 13% of total aid in 2002 to 10% in 2014. By contrast, the share of aid for health rose from 15 to 18%. Fortunately, there is now a growing momentum for change. As the intellectual case has become clearer, the voices for education have become louder. I'm glad to see so many of our friends in this fight here tonight, education campaigners who are working with us to make sure that we finally get this right. All this is what gives me heart that now is the moment to strike a new global consensus around prioritising education for every child. Just as the world rallied in the face of the HIV AIDS crisis to find new ways to collaborate and mobilise resources on health, now it's education's time. I'm convinced that people everywhere are able to embrace the education agenda. For a business leader searching for talent, whether here in Europe or in emerging markets in Africa, quality education for all matters. For a security analyst fretting over the risk of conflict, quality education for all matters. For a voter who worries about rising numbers of asylum seekers, quality education for all matters. For a feminist who admires Malala's courage, quality education for all matters. And the list could go on and on. Whether an individual voted Leave or Remain, Trump or Clinton, Le Pen or Macron, educating children should provide a point of unity. I'm also delighted to be able to say, speaking here in London, that the case for education is one the United Kingdom can put powerfully to the world. The UK has reaffirmed cross-party commitment to maintaining overseas development assistance at 0.7 per cent of GDP. There has also been a clear recognition in the UK's own aid priorities that education matters. It would be a powerful demonstration of the UK's continuing strong voice in the world if post-election it increased its own support for education and led others in the G7 to do so. Just as the case for education has never been stronger, the best ways to make a difference have never been clearer. The Global Partnership for Education, which I'm honoured to chair, is the only global fund dedicated solely to education in developing countries. I can confidently say to you that GPE is better now at the complex work of investing in and strengthening education outcomes in developing countries than it ever has been before. With more than a decade's experience and several years of organisational reform behind us, we know what makes all the difference. We know it is whether or not there is a robust national plan to guide the development of strong education systems. 
It's not just a matter of deploying more dollars or pounds to pay more teachers or build more schools, but of ensuring accountability and focusing on results right through the education system. To give you an example, the example of Tunisia and Vietnam. They spend a similar amount per pupil on primary and secondary education as a percentage of GDP. In fact, Tunisia spends slightly more. But Vietnam scores considerably higher in international secondary education tests. Vietnam's educational achievements are due to a number of factors, including strong cultural support for education and for teachers. But key to driving change has been the fact that Vietnam, which I'm proud to say has been a GPE partner since 2003, decided to develop and implement a national plan to systematically improve access to and the quality of education and to hold itself publicly accountable by publishing learning results. GPE has fine-tuned a model of education funding and partnership so we can see more success stories like this. Our first step in working with a developing country partner government is to analyse the existing education sector, to determine the scale of need and to bring everyone into a single planning process, including donors, local civil society, think tanks, teachers and private sector philanthropists. This process leads to the generation of a transparent, high-quality plan, but it must also meet other criteria. In order for a plan to be approved and then funded by GPE, our partner countries must include a finance proposal to systematically collect data and report learning results. Very significantly, they must also step up their own expenditure on education. Here I want to emphasise that although we urgently need to scale up aid for education, it is domestic funding that is and will continue to be the source of the vast majority of funds. As a result of our focus on driving domestic investment, between 2002 and 2013, GPE partner countries increased their education budgets from 15.2 to 16.6 per cent of total government expenditure, more than three times the average increase in all low- and middle-income countries. Not only is GPE funding linked to domestic spending requirements, it is also results-based. 30 per cent of GPE's main education grant to a country is linked to the achievement of agreed results in equity, efficiency and learning. But as efficient and effective as this GPE model is, to make a difference we urgently need more resources. The Education Commission, an initiative of Norwegian Prime Minister Erna Solberg, which was led by the UK's very own Gordon Brown, has recommended that GPE be scaled up to resource levels of $2 billion a year by 2020 and $4 billion a year by 2030. To get to this goal, GPE is campaigning right now for funding of $3.1 billion from existing and new donors for its upcoming replenishment from 2018 to 2020. In the next three years, this would enable the partnership to support 89 countries, which are home to 870 million children and adolescents and 78% of the world's out-of-school children. We would be able to put more than 25 million children through primary and lower secondary school, including almost 15 million in countries affected 
by fragility or conflict. But in order to mobilise the funds needed, GPE also recognises that we need new mechanisms that provide additional incentives to our country partners to raise other forms of external co-financing, and we need new donors to join the education challenge. The old way of doing aid, where a small number of donor countries wrote the lion's share of grants for developing countries, just will not be enough. So GPE is now able to offer new ways for donors and funders to invest. Donors can directly invest in GPE's newly created Knowledge and Innovation Exchange. We call it KICS. Donors that want to maximise impact can contribute to KICS to ensure new research makes an immediate difference on the ground. Our aim is for every country across the partnership to have, in a usable form, what has been learned by others, so the best new approaches can be included in an education plan. For donors who want to multiply the value of their contributions, we are creating an incentive pool of funding which will provide developing country partners with an additional dollar for every three dollars they raise for education from other sources, such as multilateral development banks, bilateral donors and the private sector. Our one clear use of this funding would be to create packages with the World Bank so that its Soft Loan International Development Association, IDA funding, becomes more attractive to use in education. Donors can now also target their financing to certain issues. For example, a donor with a particular interest in girls' education could invest in female teachers and ensuring girls have safe, clean toilets at school so their menstrual cycle is not a barrier to attendance. At GPE, we recognise that a plan is only as good as its implementation. We ensure implementation is reviewed, but we also believe that many local eyes make a difference. Consequently, GPE supports civil society coalitions in over 50 countries to advocate for education and to hold their officials to account. Just last year, the coalition in Malawi helped to uncover 3 million quacha, about 4,000 US dollars or just over 3,000 pounds in misappropriated funds meant for a school to help it buy chalk, textbooks and maintain its classrooms. By building the capacity of school management committees and parent-teacher associations, engaging advocacy organisations and investing in a strong and vibrant civil society, we are making sure accountability works from the bottom up. GPE now has the capacity to drive results, but given the scale of the global education challenge, even with $3.1 in our fund, we are not aspiring to work alone. That's why we supported the creation of Education Cannot Wait, a new fund to provide education support where there is a crisis or emergency. It's also why we are supporting the campaign to create a new international financing facility for education, which would focus on creating a pool of concessional loan financing for education for middle-income countries, especially lower middle-income ones. Just as he was at the centre of the Education Commission's work, the indefatigable Gordon Brown is campaigning for Education Cannot Wait and for the International Financing Facility. All this energy and activity is testament to my central proposition to you tonight, 
which is now is the time for education. We have the pieces in place to bring about a transformation in global education that will have lasting benefits across the sustainable development agenda. We know what to do. We have an opportunity to start an ambitious scale-up to deliver the step change that is needed in global education financing. But to realise the promise of this moment, we need to put the global education crisis and the opportunity to fix it at the front of the minds of world leaders. Prime ministers and presidents need to see education as necessary investments, as an investment in child's lives. Indeed, see it in the same way they think about investments in national infrastructure or defence. Education properly viewed is not an expense. It's an investment in peace, security and prosperity. As Nelson Mandela put it so succinctly, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. We need you, the people in this room, to join this effort because the world faces a stark choice. We can continue business as usual and face the consequences of denying hope and opportunity to rising numbers of young people in some of the poorest and least stable parts of the world. Or we can step up and step up now and make the investment in education that will pay dividends of prosperity and peace for the entire world. Here, the morally right choice and the smart choice are one and the same. We need to deliver change and create education for all. I know that there are people in this room from many, part, from many parts of the world, and I ask you to leave tonight resolved to support GPE's campaign by telling your Prime Minister or your President that you'll be watching how your country contributes to GPE's replenishment and that you expect them to scale up investment and to scale it up significantly. There's an army of civil society groups out there advocating for global education and campaigning for the success of our replenishment. Please join them, sign their petitions and take action. And for the digital natives out there, you can show your support on social media. I'll be tweeting too. Use the hashtag FundEducation. We can act together to shape the future, to make the case for investment in global education. I urge you to do so, and I thank you for your very kind attention. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to be here, and particularly to Julia for bringing home so forcefully and factually the case for education. How could anyone deny it? Before I start, I just want to give a shout-out to the students from Mulberry School sitting in the front here in their purple uniforms. Julia and I, together with Michelle Obama, um, a couple of years ago, I guess, was it, visited your school um, to make the case for Let Girls Learn. That was another hashtag, hashtag Let Girls Learn. So... Regardless of whether that hashtag exists or not, the, the issue still is alive. So it's great to see you here, and I think we've got some future leaders of, um, in the front, front rows here. So thank you for coming. Um, I wanted to start, I'm just going to make a few brief points, um, picking up some of the things that, that Julia um, has already mentioned, of which I fully agree. Um, I think we're sort of on the same page about the importance of education. 
But it's really, I think, quite um, surprising, shocking. Um, I don't quite know what word to use that keeps coming up that we're in this era um, where politicians can get away with making statements that are based on absolutely no evidence and no fact in the post-truth era. So Julia is obviously accepted from this comment, um, <laughs> Thank you. as she's just shown. But, and yet... As we've been debating in some other circles that I'm in, we have more data and evidence than ever before. And we have social media where we can all get these messages out. So what is it that's happening about this disjuncture between what politicians can get away with and what we know from the evidence? And one of the sort of most powerful pieces of evidence that is just irrefutable is the evidence that Julia has been putting forward about the case for education I mean, the the numbers are there. The extent to which a more educated population leads to economic growth, greater productivity, increasing the age of marriage, improving the health of um, children and future generations, issues around peace and security. It's just a no-brainer. So why is it that we are in this situation that we're having to make a case for education and for giving more financing to education in a context where, as Julia was saying, actually... The support to education is, if anything, globally, is, if anything, going down. I just don't understand it. And I think if anyone here in this audience has the answer to that, then maybe that will help us to unlock the situation that we're in and help us to go forward. And what is it that really is politicians finding threatening or problematic? Or what is it that's holding back the investment in education to the extent that we need it? When we think about it, the amount of international aid, this is from all donors, that is spent on educating a child in the poorest country, in a poorest country, is just around $10 per child. I think we can probably forego a couple of cups of coffee a year in order to pay for these children to get a good quality education. Why is it that we're having to make this fight and make it so forcefully when it seems, to some of us at least, so obvious? At the same time, we are in a situation not only where there's not enough funding, but as Julia was also mentioning, we've got this huge challenge, a huge challenge both in terms of getting children into school and staying in school as well as learning once there. And it's the most disadvantaged. It's the children from the poorest backgrounds living in the remote rural areas or in urban slums, the children with disabilities, the children from particular ethnic groups who are getting left behind. And however much we're making the case, we're showing the numbers, we're showing that of those most marginalised, only around one in four are actually getting to the end of primary school in some of the poorest countries. If we think of this audience here, divide up just a quarter of this audience, think that you could never get to the end of primary school. We would be shocked. And yet this is the reality in some of the poorest countries. So what is it that we need to do to convince the leaders in some of these countries and the leaders globally who we want to put their monies in their pockets and to help to support and change the situation? What is it that we need to do differently? Julia, um, together with her colleagues at the Global Partnership for Education, have been making a huge um, difference to this debate. And I think as you were mentioning, Julia, the sort of shift that there's been within GPE is quite tremendous. I think whenever an organisation is set up on this scale with the, with the ambition that, as it was previously called the Fast Track Initiative and now GPE has had, it's not surprising that there's sort of bumps along the way. But now I think we have a clear 
um, line of vision for the Global Partnership for Education. It's clear where it's heading. It's clearer, becoming clearer what the priorities are. The work on the ground, supporting countries in their national education planning, making sure countries have robust plans in place. They know how much it's going to be to fund their education plans. They're working together with um, governments, with civil society, with other donors to make sure that not only are these plans in place, not only is there sufficient funding available, but they're also being implemented. That they're working, I, I like that, the um, acronym KICKS, um, sort of with evidence, with data, to make sure that actually this is done in a way that we can really help to see change. And I think this is really important. And the um, point that Julia was making about making sure that GP has the resources it needs to actually play the role that is intending and wants to play is really important. So I just support the points that Julia has been making on that. Just to take it maybe one step further, I think we all know that it's not just about the amount of money, it's also about how that money is used. So the Education Commission that um, Julia was mentioning that is headed by Gordon Brown, one of its messages was on progressive universalism. So this was about how to make sure that the funds that are available and hopefully a growing pot of funds that are available are prioritised to both where the returns to education are the most and to where the needs are the most. And by coincidence or otherwise, they converge. This needs to be on the earliest parts of the education system. We know that the returns to early childhood to education are high and we also know that when disadvantaged children get into early childhood education, they are more likely then to make it through primary school and to be learning. We also know that actually many countries, education funding is skewed towards higher levels potentially at the expense of lower levels. That's not to say higher education shouldn't be funded. I'm from the University of Cambridge. I think I would lose my job if I was making that argument. But it is about an issue of prioritisation. It's about an issue of prioritisation both within governments and for, for donor funds. So I think the issue that you were making about donors having the opportunity to choose what they're going to fund and to target specific things... I can see the benefits of that, provided it is, is within the boundaries of saying that this is all to benefit the most disadvantaged children who otherwise are not having the opportunity to stay in school and to learn, and those children who are from these poorest communities, who are the children with disabilities, and so on. And also the very important point about those children who are living in conflict zones who are the most likely overall to be out of school, where education systems just collapse, where they have to flee their countries um, or be, are displaced within their countries and have very limited opportunity for education. So I think just to sort of reinforce the message, not only that we need more money, but we need to make sure that money is going to those who need it the most. Um, and I think there's a lot of analysis that we can draw on that shows how we can prioritise better. Um, We're having debates here in the UK about how to spend the limited education budget that is available. This is the reality all around the world. So... I think just to conclude, I would just again like to thank Julia for the, the really important points um, and to reiterate the hashtag, not only hashtag LSE education that I had my head in front of, but hashtag fund education. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, well... Um, 
I'd like to thank both of our speakers on, on your behalf as well as mine. I, uh, uh, a lot of really important issues raised and a lot of passion, and uh, um, now it's all your turn. Um, so I'd like to take um, questions from the audience. We'll start off one at a time and maybe accelerate um, if there really a lot of hands go up. Um, there's going to be people... Uh, with um, microphones, it would be very, very helpful um, if you uh, could say who you are and your affiliation uh, before speaking and wait until uh, the microphone is in front of you um, because we're obviously trying to tape this and um, the answer will make more sense if the, uh, uh, the broadcast also has the question. So um, maybe we'll start up top with the guy with the red T-shirt. Uh, hello, uh, yes, yeah, th thank you for a great talk. Um, I'm Alex, uh, I have no affiliation, I'm just interested in the, in the lecture, and I've heard a lot about you. Um, I'm just wondering uh, to what extent the elite or the rich use social dogmas like identity politics to suppress the poor and keep them in their place, when actually the only way that the poor can win or um, get an education is to stick together and be kind to each other and be, and, and be nice. It's, it's not about identity politics, it's just being, about, just being human. Do I have to do anything dreadfully technical with this? No. Okay, that's good. Uh, th thank, thank you for the question. I mean, we do see... Um, I mean, we do see sometimes in our own countries, but we certainly see in uh, developing countries where GPE works that uh, they're, you know, the underlying pattern of expenditure has been one that has benefited uh, empowered groups and the kids who are most likely to be left behind are the rural children, the girls, children with disabilities, perhaps children from uh, ethnic or language groups who face other sorts of oppression and marginalisation issues in that country. Um, and you know, our philosophy, and I think the global philosophy, is education needs to be made available as a universal right to every child. Now, the nature of the politics that makes that possible, whether it's um, uh, poorer people coming together, banding together and demanding it, uh, whether it's uh, a philosophical um, outlook from the government that it's the right thing to do, uh, whether it's national, uh, national or global standards, things like the Sustainable Development Goals with their emphasis on universality. But wherever the impulse comes from, we think that that impulse has to be supported so that you end up with every child having the benefit of a great education. And to echo what Pauline said, this philosophy of progressive universalism, making sure that no child gets left behind, when you actually analyse where the greatest economic benefits are from education, where the big gains are, the big gains are to be had by including the most marginalised. Uh, so we think that there's lots of hard-headed reasons to do that, as well as some, you know, moral frameworks and human rights frameworks. Hang on. Thank you very much. Um, um, I work for the CARE Foundation. We uh, have adopted about 800 state schools in Pakistan, and we improve them and we run them and we raise funds for them. Um, so I work for the UK chapter, which is fundraising mainly. Um, I've got three really quick things. So the first thing is Pakistan. Pakistan has the second highest number of out-of-school children, so it's about 25 million. 
um, which is a huge number, and it's, it's a crisis by, by all means. So firstly, uh, does, has the Global Partnership for Education at all engaged with, with Pakistan, or is that in the offing, um, and what, what shape would that take? Secondly, I know that DFID has a huge um, international program. Well, not, I don't know if it's huge, but you know, it sounds like a significant amount that's going in. And we always hear of aid going in, in this international aid, it's going in, but nothing seems to change. The state education system is entirely broken. Children can go into school till fourth or fifth grade and not read a sentence. Um, so what happens between this large number that we hear about, X million, going into education, and why there's absolutely nothing of that that seems to materialize is, is, is a bit confusing. And thirdly, uh, how do so, sort of charities, n more national organizations on the ground that are working to try and sort of plug that hole where the state is simply not being able to do it, it seems that the landscape for them has changed as well very much with what's called charity fatigue, et cetera, and with transparency issues and with uh, monitoring and evaluation, which I know is very important. But how do charities like that who really do do good work and who know the local context and can make a difference um, for a low amount of money, where do they go and why are they not able to engage uh, people in the cause? Uh, you know, um, sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll reply as quickly as I can. G GPE is engaged in uh, two provinces in Pakistan, the two lowest income provinces. Um, as a whole, though, Pakistan is quite close to being too moneyed for GPE support. And you might think, well, hang on, when there are so many kids out of school and so much poverty. Uh, but on the global income bands, you know, Pakistan is a middle-income country. Uh, and so, you know, there's clearly um, some uh, eligibility things we have to think about so that our dollars are directed where they're going to go to the hardest environments and the lowest income places. But we are engaged in Pakistan. Um, on do dollars just go in and do things ever get done, we can uh, point in GPE countries to things like increasing primary school completion rates by 10%, increasing them by 15% for girls, uh, and many other indicators that show that the money has been spent for impact. Um, on the role of charities and um, uh, you know the philanthropic sector, the church sector, um, you know from our point of view, um, it, it is possible for many to participate in changing education. Our model is an inclusive one. We welcome many voices and civil society. Uh, we think it's important, though, that all of it uh, ends up being properly planned. Uh, and one of the critical difficulties in many countries is that there's you know, episodic engagement from charities, and I'm not criticising the charities for that, it's just hard to sustain uh, the efforts over a long period of time, but we're only going to you know, lift the needle in education if there is that engagement over a long period of time, which is why the systems-wide approach um, giving the benefit of a robust plan for people to organise against actually has more impact than just the direction of the GPE dollars. But big, big problems uh, to solve and big problems take continuing efforts and resources, which is what we're obviously focused on tonight. Right, and maybe just to come back as well, because I've, with colleagues um, working on some issues in Pakistan, so I think there's sort of points that you're raising are very pertinent. What one point I would make is inevitably some of the education issues go beyond education. So the lack of resources in Pakistan 
is partly to do with the low tax base in the first place, which means then in turn few resources get passed on to education. Um, And in addition, the large military budget means, the point that Julie was making earlier, means that there's insufficient resources for education. So about 2% of GDP in Pakistan is spent on education, which was one of the lowest in the world. So I think there's a sort of opportunity there, and I think this is already what some donors are doing in Pakistan, not only just to support the education sector directly, which is important, but also the tax reforms that are going on within the country, um, which, which are potentially hugely important. I think the, the other, on your other point about sort of seeing, you know, the, we continuously see Pakistan as being one of the lowest performers um, in terms of numbers out of school, similarly in terms of learning. I think, I mean, I, I agree with Julie, there have been improvements on some things like the quality of education. It obviously takes time, and I think that's partly the reason why it can be sometimes more difficult for us to make the case in education, because in health, you can quickly identify the number of um, people who have, whose lives have been saved thanks to a vaccine. It's much more difficult to do that in education. It's a long-term investment, and it's only going to be possible if we sometimes look beyond the boundaries of any one Um, government's election cycle if we're going to really see a difference. So I think there's a number of important points that potentially go beyond the education sector, but that we need to be working together closely with to see the change that we want. Uh, Gentleman on the back row has been waiting a little time. Now, good evening. Um, I also come from the South Wales Valleys and trying to make my fortune in a foreign country in here in London. <laughs> um, I do political research. I wanted to ask a question about um, what, what we call in Britain secondary education rather than the junior, um, the junior education that was mentioned. And in countries where the, the governments are either um, dictatorships, um, autocracies backed by, by the military, or um, old-fashioned kingdoms, do you see any possibility that you could introduce um, political education for citizenship so that in the future, the children, when they grow up, become young adults, see there's a possibility that things can change through democratic processes rather than what we've seen all over the time is the military-based overthrows of governments? I mean, you, you, raise a, uh, you raise a very complex question in a beautiful accent, but a com- <laughs> complex question. Um, uh, I mean, we, we in some ways have to uh, work with uh, developing country governments as we find them, uh, because uh, it's, you know, their leadership, um, you know, which we do make sure is inclusive of others, so civil society and uh, people who may want to put a different perspective uh, than the government itself have to be included in the planning process. Uh, But at the end of the day, to work with change, you do end up working with governments in some ways as you find them. Um, That doesn't mean that through uh, resourcing civil society and through GPE's own advocacy that we don't put perspectives about what an appropriate uh, 21st century education looks like. But there's obviously got to be dialogue about that. There can't be sort of imposition from above. And the other thing that, you know, uh, really uh, pertains to this point is the connected nature of our world. 
Um, yes, there are some incredibly oppressive regimes around the world, think of North Korea, uh, that have managed to push back uh, the tide of, of globalisation and interconnection and tried to starve people of information. But right around the world now, you do find that people have got access to information. They know what is going on um, and they do know if their government is trying to sell them uh, something that is completely divorced from reality. So societies are more uh, questioning now of the things that they're told than they've been in the past, which in many ways is all to the good uh, in terms of building cultures of civil, uh, civic engagement and uh, accountability, holding governments to account for what they're doing and what they're Thank you. Um, hello, my name is Tanima and I'm from Mulberry School for Girls. And may I just begin by saying we would love to host you both again <laughs> Thank you. soon to continue our discussion on education. But anyway, so my question is how do you propose that we, as a global community, can provide education to girls in post conflict zones, so places such as Afghanistan and maybe Lebanon, because of the amount of displaced people there. Because it's just that much more difficult, isn't it? Because not only are there these cultural barriers, but then there's a complete lack of infrastructure. Where would you begin? Where would you start? What would you do? So how do you think that we can help? Well, I'm, I'm confident we can help, and the reason I'm confident is uh, Afghanistan is a member of the Global Partnership for Education, and we have been engaged there on planning the schooling system and mobilising resources to realise the plan. And, you know, it is a question of getting a plan right that works within a context. And so uh, one of the things that is pivotal to the plan for education in Afghanistan uh, is that we needed to see the training of more female teachers because many families uh, would not permit their girl to go to school if she was not going to be taught by a woman. And so we have been able to work with them to lift the training of female teachers, which in turn has lifted the number of girls going to school. Now, that doesn't wish away all sorts of challenges about poverty, uh, the security environment, and uh, many of us would know from recent incidents in Afghanistan that in parts the security environment has become very challenging, uh, once again very dangerous. Um, and in those circumstances, families are obviously going to think about whether or not it's safe for their child to uh, go a distance to education. But with you know, clever work, um, thoughtful work and the mobilisation of resources, you can often find solutions. Uh, and one of the things that never ceases to amaze me as I get to travel to some of our developing country partners is how motivated... Um, girls in particular are to get an education and the fact that they will, um, you know, travel huge distances, um, uh, risk um, their own personal safety, uh, walk miles and miles in order to get an opportunity to be educated. So if they're doing that with such determination and courage, uh, I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that there is a quality school for them when they get there. I'm, there's so many hands going up that I'm going to move um, to taking two or three questions at once. And let's start uh, with these two who have been very persistent up here. 
Uh, hi, thank you for speaking to us. Um, what do you, how do you think the changing face of technology, for example, artificial intelligence and ed tech, is going to ch impact uh, your work? Um, hello, I'm, I come from Iran, Educational Foundation in Iran, and I work there. And uh, my question is a little bit personal as a woman who is uh, somehow powerful in her role. And um, I want to know what are the main challenges of a woman in this role? And uh, because I come from educational sector, I work with so many women. They are mostly in um, lower levels in the educational hierarchy. They are mostly teachers. And um, that glass ceiling is, is, is uh, one of the main problems in my country. I want to know how did you pass that glass ceiling, yeah. and uh, what have been your main challenges? Why don't you just take those two? Okay. Uh, th thank you for both questions. On uh, education technology, um, our, our work is not engaged. I, I certainly uh, follow in the literature because I'm personally interested, but our work is not engaged at the absolute forefront of educational technology like the artificial intelligence uh, potential that, that you're referring to, uh, because many of the contexts in which we work, um, there's not connectivity, there's not electricity or reliable electricity. Um, and so, you know, technology solutions at scale, trying to give every child a device, for example, aren't going to fit in the context. Uh, and in fact, many errors have been made in trying to drop in hardware uh, in circumstances where it's just not going to work. What we have found um, can be quite transformative is education technology for teachers, uh, including enabling teachers to be paid regularly and on time and them getting uh, curriculum and other support materials through the technology, uh, teacher attendance being checked through uh, technology, uh, so that kind of intersection. None of that is uh, you know, meant to say that technology won't play uh, a big part of the global solution, but education you know, and, and uh, the circumstances within countries have to be lifted to a certain level before it can really make a meaningful impact. Um, on uh, women and leadership, I'll have to come back for a whole other lecture. Um, I did, uh, I, this is what I talked about when I came uh, for the Above the Parapet uh, series, but to do it as quickly as possible, um, you know, right, right around the world today there are still challenges for women's equality. Uh, the, the statistics are less than one in five uh, parliamentarians are women, only about 10% of national leaders are women. And yet, if you believe, as I do, that merit is equally distributed between the sexes, we really should be looking at our parliaments and national leaders and seeing around half-half. Uh, what is stopping women coming forward? Uh, that depends a great deal on uh, different contexts. In some countries, um, you know, basically women still don't have uh, the, the legal rights and political rights to engage, uh, to become a female leader. 
in other countries uh, like my own, women have enjoyed long-standing uh, political rights and the ability to engage, but there have still been sexist stereotypes whispering in the back of people's brains. Uh, so when they think of a leader, they think of a man rather than thinking of a woman. And when a woman does come forward to leadership, there's all sorts of you know, different judgments that are brought to bear and different things commented upon. You know, appearance and other questions tend to come to the fore, family structures, uh, questions about likability, because there's a lot of research now on unconscious bias that, um, you know, has led uh, researchers to the conclusion that likability and leadership are often correlated for men but tend not to be correlated for women. So all, all sorts of um, uh, issues to resolve, but about all of them I'm ultimately a long-term optimist. Uh, I think the global direction of travel is right. The pace of it, nowhere near quickly enough. But the global direction of travel is right. I can see across my own life that you know, the, the world um, is a better place for women, uh, a more equal place for women than when I was growing up. And if I can track that across my life, it gives me a lot of optimism about what could happen next. Hi, my name's Tim Besley. I'm in the economics department here at LSE. I want to draw you out a little bit on a topic that you only mentioned very briefly, actually, in the answer to one of those questions, which is the, the, the topic of teacher quality and teacher performance. Because one thing I've become convinced by when I look at the uh, evidence is just how central to, uh, to pupil attainment is teacher quality. And one thing we also know, that having looked at teacher absence, and that's what you mentioned just now, in a large number of countries, you find that teachers are simply not showing up to work. When they do, they're not motivated to teach. And uh, I wonder what work the, the Global Partnership for Education is doing on that, because this is a, a classic area where it's not a, really a resource problem. Mm. I mean, some people will say, well, you have to pay them better, but actually teachers are relatively well paid in a lot of uh, poor countries relative to how they are paid in developed countries. So I'd be very curious to know what work you're doing in that area and what your, your views are on that. Mm. I think I'll take that on its own. So good. Sure. Uh, and, and Pauline might have some comments on this too. I, I think you're uh, absolutely right to shine a light on this problem and a key constraint on the quality of an education system is the quality of the teaching. Um, in, in many countries, of course, teachers are... Uh, untrained or very uh, thinly trained and so there's work to do to be uh, upskilling the professional workforce. Many countries are dreadfully short of teachers and if you actually look at the statistics, even if almost everybody who comes out of their universities elects to go teaching, it won't be enough to fill, fill the gaps because you've got uh, you know, more, more children um, and you, you need to uh, get more trained teachers there. So we do work on workforce development um, and in this replenishment period we would be directing resources to the training of 1.7 million teachers. But we do focus too on the efficiency of the system. It's one of our results-based uh, modules in the 30% results-based financing. And in that, if it appears in a nation that things like teacher absenteeism are a big problem, then that can go into uh, being an indicator for the efficiency of the system to try and focus efforts on resolving those problems. Um, so it's, 
we would make an error to say that is the problem in every developing country. Uh, many developing countries, you know, teachers are in class, on task, actually asked to teach double shifts, that is to teach longer hours than teachers in the UK would possibly tolerate uh, or teachers in Australia would possibly tolerate. But it is, it is a direct problem in a number of developing countries and so the nature of the education sector plan and the incentives for change built into the plan have to address it. Yeah, so thank you for the question, which is an important one. And sort of maybe just also to pick up on it, the, first of all, the more general point on teacher quality and then the specific issue about teacher absenteeism. Um, I mean, I think we're sort of aware of the fact that there are a lot of problems in terms of the quality of education, and given that the teacher is core to the quality of education, the burden of that problem falls on the shoulders of the teachers. They themselves are obviously a product of their own education system in many ways, and at the same time, they are facing an increasingly diverse classroom, um, a classroom where you have first-generation learners in the, in the schools, children whose own parents aren't literate, they don't have the support networks that we are used to or some of their peers are used to, and the teachers themselves are not equipped to teach these diver this diversity. So if you look across teacher education programs in many countries um, that we will be focusing on, this is not an issue in their teacher education programs. So in a sense, you know, on the one level, one can be critical that the teachers aren't performing and aren't getting the quality that's needed. At the same time, they're not being equipped with the skills that they need. And I can only imagine, if I were in that situation, I'd probably be pretty frustrated, demotivated, and either be thinking of leaving the profession if there were other jobs available or potentially finding other things that are going to keep the um, things ticking along. I'm not sure I totally agree with the point that they're reasonably well paid. We did some analysis for the Global Monitoring Report that looked across many of the low and lower middle income countries. Some countries, such as India, which is often the country that gets the most attention, is one where, relatively speaking, um, they're not badly paid. I'm well paid is maybe a bit too much. There are some countries, though, where teachers are paid below the poverty line, um, if you think, take into account sort of various factors. And so, you know, it's not surprising in those contexts that then the teachers take on additional jobs to, to make ends meet. So I think we've got to sort of put it in that, that wider picture and sort of be careful sometimes that we're drawing on evidence from places where there are more data but maybe can't paint the picture overall. Um, this isn't, I'm not saying that teacher absenteeism isn't a problem, but I think we just um, need to sometimes be cautious. The other thing that I think I find quite frustrating in some of the debate on teacher absenteeism is that that... Um, analysis doesn't go the step further to understand why the teachers are absent, to hear from the teachers themselves what it is that's holding them back, to then identify the solutions. Um, because, yes, there's a problem, but to identify the solutions, we need to know why, why it is um, that there, there's the problem in the first place. So there have been you know, experiments that I know you'll be aware of, of trying different things in terms of trying to incentivize, and some things working better than others, and putting teachers on short-term contracts, and seeing that can perform better, at least in the short term. Um, but really, I think we have an insufficient understanding more, more generally of, of how to deal with, with this issue to make sure that we're moving beyond saying it's a problem to identifying the solutions that are going to see the sort of large-scale shifts that we need to see and recognise the teachers um, as struggling in the role that they're in. Just one final point. Um, I'm working on a research project in India and Pakistan and in this context went to visit some schools. And I think 
I was really very pleasantly surprised by seeing teachers in very under-resourced circumstances who were there really trying to identify strategies themselves with very limited support um, and some of their own skills development and professional development of recognising that some of their children were struggling and trying to identify the best ways to support them. So I think there's a lot of positive experiences out there that we probably need to also spend more time um, learning from in order to identify not only those um, that are part of a problem, but also those that can help us identify the solution. I'll take a few from up here. The, the third lady in the third row. Thank you. I noticed that uh, GPE has many of the partners in GPE are countries from former, uh, the part of the former British Empire. And I'm wondering what, uh, how does GP ensure the decolonization of education in these countries and in the programs that it, it works with, the institutions, the curricula, because that goes to the heart of so much of what happens. By the way, my name's Anne, and um, no affiliation, spent many years in education, but I'm really um, bewildered in a sense because both in the developed world and in the developing world or however one chooses to define there is a desperate desperate need for a decolonization <coughs> of the whole of education and I agree with the presentation and also Professor Rose's passionate support that education is a key and is one of the least expensive in terms of money but needs the will for it to happen take just a few more from here the lady that in second row and then then you uh, thank you thank you for your lectures my name is Dylan I'm from South Korea not from North Korea unfortunately I have a question uh, I'm having my master here at LSE I have a question related to child labor issues I think education issues in developing countries are closely related to child labor issues if we build schools for children and their parents, parents send their kids to work and they're forced to work, then what happens? Is there any actions taken by GPE related to child labor issue? And then one more from uh, just there. Yeah. Yes. Hello, uh, my name is Julia McGowan. I'm actually with uh, Handicap International, work on inclusive education. Um, just wanted to say a couple of, of points. One is to thank uh, Pauline for her comments around uh, children with disability, because I think that's uh, obviously I'm slightly biased because I work, work in that field, but I think it's really important to, to focus in on specific groups that are particularly disadvantaged and make sure they're not left behind. Um, and on, on the top of that, I wanted to just mention the issue of inclusive education, given that uh, SDG4 is quality inclusive education, and all throughout this whole you know, evening, we haven't actually mentioned the inclusive as part of the education. And we've talked about education for all, and we've talked about diversity, but just to, to have that notion of inclusive education, it's, it's, it's a real key, because it goes to some of these issues we've been talking about around training teachers, what do they need to know, how can they help the needs of the different children they've got in their classrooms, and all of that is very linked to inclusive education. So I suppose my question, particularly uh, to Julia, would be um, on in terms of GPE, how are you ensuring that, that some maybe some funds are particularly earmarked for disability inclusive education and that your um, results framework includes indicators specific to disability? Um, thanks. Okay. Um, 
Uh, th thank you for all three questions. I'll take them in reverse order. Uh, I, I agree with you on absolutely on the inclusive uh, education, and we do uh, we we do monitor uh, on uh, in inclusion of children who are likely to be left behind, including children with disabilities. So that is part of the way in which we benchmark what is happening within countries. Um, so I can assure you that that's a focus and it's been uh, a focus of a number of developing countries stepping forward really wanting to make a difference and a number of donors have been very focused on uh, inclusive education, particularly inclusive of children with disabilities. On the child labour point, um, once again I absolutely agree with you. Um, I mean our bit of that is, is the education provision and there are others who are working on the regulatory changes and inspection regimes that enable uh, child labour to be identified. We don't do that but we certainly are in uh, active partnerships with those that do and you need both uh, working to resolve child labour. If we look at uh, the history of the UK on child labour, what at, you know, got kids uh, out of that circumstance. Yes, it was things like factory acts and industrial inspections, uh, but it was also compulsory schooling, uh, because with compulsory schooling, if you see a child not in school, then it tells you potentially there's a problem. Um, so until you get that compulsory schooling uh, happening, it can be easier for child labour to sort of blend into the community and not come to the attention of the authorities and, and regulators. Um, on the curriculum, um, you know, because ours is a, a you know a country-led development model, uh, we are not um, imposing curriculum from the outside. And um, many many countries themselves would have a very clear idea about how they want to uh, shape their curriculum to tell their own uh, nation's story, its history, uh, to teach its language. Uh, to make sure that the curriculum is one for the children of that country and not something that is a legacy curriculum from an earlier age. Uh, so it's not something GPE comes from the outside and deals with, because inherently that wouldn't work, uh, and it isn't our theory of change and model of change. It's about developing country uh, leadership and their own decision-making. Thank you. I'll stay on the higher tier. This gentleman's been waiting a long time with his hand up. Thank you very much. Um, uh, we have um, an election coming up. In a few hours, nomination, uh, sorry, um, we'll, we'll be stopped from being able to um, take part in this election. In Australia, um, you're forced to do so. <laughs> um, I'd just like to ask Julia, because um, you are a ex-female um, Prime Minister. We have a female Prime Minister <laughs> at, at, at the present time. I'd, I'd just like to ask if you could say, in terms of education for all, uh, meeting the challenges of the 21st century, um, whether or not you feel that we are doing enough um, in terms of educating people about 
political participation. We don't seem to engage with people enough. Here in Britain, um, people are not voting. Young people in particular are not voting. Can you say something about what we can do to improve that and make sure that people do vote for change? Thank you. Thank you. Maybe take another question here. Thank you. Um, my name is Wadzi. I was previously with African Leadership Academy. Um, in, in a number of African countries, the, the gap between the number of kids that need to go to school, particularly quality education, a lot of that gap is being bridged by private sector providers. And there's a lot of innovation and a lot of business opportunities and a lot of organizations that are springing up um, looking at education from a very commercial lens, which I think is great, um, but is potentially risky because there's a lot of innovation within that space and a lot of low-cost private schools. So um, my question, I guess, is, is maybe to both Julia and Pauline. Are, are you, is the GPE doing any work to monitor how the private sector uh, develops solutions to meet the education gap in a way that you know, the standards are good, the quality of education is still reliable, in a way that remains affordable and perhaps not necessarily exploitative? I'm aware that, for example, in Liberia, there has been a, pub a public-private partnership you know, between um, the government of Liberia and a private sector provider. But what kind of things are you doing to, to both foster and support the growth of the private sector, uh, but also ensure that as companies grow and scale, which is entirely necessary, they're doing that in a way that remains impactful and still delivers positive and meaningful outcomes? Maybe take these two. Okay. Uh, I, I'll take those two questions. On the uh, democratic participation, I'm not sure that I've got the secret source that would uh, engage uh, young people the way I'd like to see young people engaged in uh, democratic debates. I am a fan of the Australian system of uh, compulsory voting, which is really a system of compulsory enrolment. Uh, so you have to enrol to vote, you have to go and get your ballot paper, uh, you don't have to fill it in. Um, you can take the option of writing a four-letter word which best expresses your view of politics uh, and putting it in the ballot box and um, people having scrutineered in the past, people do do that. Uh, but um, it, it does mean that ultimately our politics ends up being the politics of the mainstream because overwhelmingly people vote and they vote validly. Um, and I think you know, we've just got to remind ourselves um, what a great privilege it is to live in countries where you get to vote. Um, I used to make myself uh, not very popular on election day when I was a young backbench MP, which is a bit of a high-risk strategy when you stop and think about it. Uh, but you would be canvassing as people are waiting to go into polling places, um, you know, and they're complaining because it's a 10 or 15-minute wait. Uh, and I'd be there saying, oh, for heavens above, you know, people around the world fight and die for the right to vote and you can't be bothered waiting in a line for 10 minutes. Like, get over yourself. Um, uh, so... I, I don't, don't know whether that increased my margin or not, um, uh, but uh, it did, did generally, along the line, pass the head-nodding test of people who go, oh, yeah, I suppose she's right, I suppose it is. <laughs> um, it, it is a good thing that we get to vote. Um, so I, I, think, um, I think so many people have, lo young people in particular, have lost the sense 
that there is ultimately a connection between their vote and their view and what their governments do. And I can understand why modern politics has, in many ways, tested people's faith on that. Um, but as someone who used to be in a you know, hot seat as a Prime Minister, I can absolutely assure people uh, that monitoring community sentiment and community activism is the stuff of day-to-day -day politics. So if people do get engaged and do raise their voice, it does ultimately make a difference to the decisions that governments make. And we're obviously urging people to do that here tonight on education. Uh, on uh, private schools, uh, low-cost private schools, uh, because of the way our model works, which is, um, you know, for uh, it, it's you know working with a country on planning its system, uh, it's not you know rolling out of Washington and saying you should definitely do it like this. Uh, decisions about the engagement of for-profit schools in that country's education system will be made by that national government. Um, either made directly, uh, for example, Liberia, which is a GPE country, has taken the decision to have the pilot with bridge academies, uh, or it will be an inherited circumstance with the education system. For example, Haiti is a GPE partner and overwhelmingly uh, children in Haiti are educated not in government schools. Uh, and so we work uh, with the country on properly planning the education system no matter what context children are educated in, uh, whether they're in government schools, in for-profit schools, in non-government schools, whatever context they're educated in, we work on proper planning for the entire system. Um, ultimately, and we were talking about inclusive education before, ultimately to equip the goal we all have of every child having a quality education, that must mean uh, that countries are offering children free at the point of access entry points to education uh, because if you don't have that then the poorest and most at risk won't get to go. But that doesn't mean that some countries won't go through for a you know, system that's got the engagement of a wide variety of players uh, so that there are free at the point of access government schools and there are some for-profit providers, there are some not-for-profit providers. All countries won't make choices like Liberia where it is free at the point of access but the government has engaged the private sector provider. Um, from my, from my experience, um, you know, as an education minister in Australia, um, the only thing I'd, I'd caution on is uh, be, be very careful in judging on labels and very forensic in looking at what is actually happening in individual schools. We don't have for-profit education in Australia, but we have uh, non-government schools and government schools. Um, and for a long period of time, people thought private equaled good and public equaled bad. Uh, when I was Education Minister, I uh, put in place a huge transparency project. So for every school in Australia, government and private, uh, you can look at uh, literacy and numeracy attainment, uh, school by school, uh, against data that shows you the socio-economic composition of the children in the school uh, and the amount of resources are devoted to educating those children, the amount of money in the school, because the system's been running for some time now. It gives very sophisticated value-added metrics. Uh, and when we drove the data to that point school by school, we found um, 
Yes, there are some fantastic uh, private schools, um, but we also found uh, that there are private schools who are teaching very disadvantaged kids and people would have thought the private sector was an elite sector. And we found government schools that are getting incredible results. Uh, and actually in some communities where historically they'd looked at the private school and said that's a good quality school and the government school and said that's a bad quality school when the data was unveiled, uh, they worked out actually the government school was doing better than the private school teaching more disadvantaged children. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm an advocate for the evidence uh, and never just succumbing to the label tells you, whether it's labelled private or government, tells you what the quality is going to be. You've got to do the delving behind that um, so that we're always uh, seeing very clearly uh, where quality is and where quality should be improved. Pauline's just going to come in. Um, yeah, I think just to support, I think what you're saying about what you've seen from those data in Australia, one can also see from um, some of the poorest countries as well. So we don't have as much data in other countries, but in countries like um, India and Pakistan and some East African countries where we've been working with what's called citizen-led assessment data, we've seen that poorest children who are in private schools are less likely to be learning than richer children in government schools. So it's not just to do with the type of school, it's to do with whether you're rich and poor, what type of schools you have access to, where you're living, etc. So I think it is a far more complex picture. Of course, these private schools have um, been mushrooming because of a void, because of some of the problems we're seeing in the education sector, which comes back to the need for more funding overall, but not to see these private schools as a panacea necessarily, because... They are also low quality. They might just sometimes be slightly higher quality than some of the government schools in, in those areas. Thank you. I'm going to take the last round of questions. I know a lot of people have had their hands up, but um, I'm going to go start here and then go to there. Thank you. My name's Sammy. I'm also from Mulberry. And my question was, for schoolgirls like us, what could we do that would help um, get children, get people in school, and help the global partnership for education. Maybe behind. Hello, it's Anne Heald. I'm an education consultant and work on a, a number of different projects in schools and some government-based ones. Um, I'm very aware that uh, most of my work is in the UK, but not all of it. Um, I'm very aware that our own government is uh, almost obsessive about the PISA tables and where we sit in the international ranking, uh, which has then kind of shaped this real focus on literacy and numeracy, which of course is important internationally. Uh, but I wonder how, um, with the model that you've talked about in being sort of built up from the needs of the individual countries, which I wholeheartedly agree with, how valuable are things like the PISA tables and do you see those as important? Because they are actually um, sometimes putting the focus on the wrong elements for offering a breadth and depth of curriculum which is so valuable to the schools themselves. Take one last question there. 
Can I just ask a quick question? I just wanted to echo what yes. the young lady here said. Um, I, my name's Stephanie. I teach psychology in a local sixth-form college in south-east London. Um, and myself as a teacher, unfortunately, I don't have billions of pounds to give you to help you. Um, but how can, as a teacher, can I help the GPE project um, across the world? Thanks. Last one. Yes, um, thank you very much. Just a question on the political cycle and the election cycle. And I'm asking you a question as a former politician. Early childhood education actually has the highest return on investment out of everything. And the payout, the payoff rate, you know, it, it takes a while to get there. And politicians have a four-year cycle, five-year cycle. What is your argument that one, I'm from the Novak Djokovic Foundation, by the way, and we focus on early childhood. What is the argument that one should put in front of a politician who's perhaps looking more at the election cycle than, than what the economic theory tells you about investing in early childhood? Thank you. Right. <laughs> um, on uh, on early childhood, um, you know, having having been a, a politician, I think uh, we've got to give uh, politicians a little bit of credit. Yes, uh, yes, election cycles matter, uh, but um, people do make decisions that will have impact over the longer term. Um, I mean, you know, as a government, we did a whole set of changes in early childhood uh, because we were absolutely persuaded by the, you know, uh, increasingly available, uh, you know, neurological development research that showed when the connections were being formed in a child's brain and consequently the economic analysis that showed how important it was to invest in early childhood education. So I don't think, you know, politicians absolutely turn their eyes against long uh, longer-term investments. Uh, really, it's about um, make, making the case for change with evidence and with practical policies to, to take you there. And one of the things I think sometimes as advocates maybe uh, we make a mistake about is we try and go from, you know, in a political campaign we try and go from where we are now to advocating for utopia and obviously decision makers need the various steps um, spelled out as to what's, you know, success to make a difference and then the next difference and then the next difference. Um, and, you know, at the Global Partnership for Education in thinking about our replenishment campaign, we've deli deliberately done that. We've stepped this out as a replenishment to take us to being a $2 billion a year fund rather than just saying, unless we get $2 billion a year tomorrow, then, you know, it's not a successful round because we understand it takes government's time to make decisions and to gear up for more and more resources going to education. So I do think, um, you know, much of the policy argument about early childhood education has been one, so I'm, I'm optimistic about that. And certainly in developing country contexts, people are increasingly focused on early childhood, the interconnections with nutrition, uh, the interconnections ultimately with long-term education potential. Um, on the, the question about uh, PISA, um, you know, PISA is a test that makes sense when people have had the benefit of um, 10 years of continuous education. It's a test for 15-year-olds. Um, and in many developing countries, the numbers of students who would have had the benefit of that 10 years of continuous education is actually very few uh, because, you know, kids are still disproportionately leaving at the end of primary school. <coughs> so there is um, work being done on PISA for development, uh, a test that would be more appropriate for many developing country contexts. 
Um, you know, I, I'm I'm an advocate of that kind of you know, personally. I'm an advocate of that kind of testing. I think you do need um, to be able to measure and benchmark where uh, countries are. That doesn't mean that you then close down all education to just what is being measured in those tests. I think it requires a common sense perspective about you know depth and breadth. Um, I know from uh, some work I've done at Brookings that there's been a lot of dialogue, uh, including with uh, developing countries, about the aspirations they've got for their education system. And it has been about, you know, being being workers and citizens in a 21st century world. They do want, uh, you know, their education system to be one with breadth in it. Uh, they're not saying, you know, let's just pound on literacy and numeracy. Uh, but we do need kids coming out of schools being literate and numerate. So I think we can do that balance. And some of the you know, issues that we have in our own education debates about testing and is testing too frequent and is the curriculum too crowded actually don't apply in many of these developing country contexts. Kids aren't tested um, <coughs> regularly. The curriculum isn't too crowded. It's really a question of getting access to as many hours a day of education as students need rather than being forced into long hours and after school programs. That's not the problem. So we've got to be careful about uplifting our policy concerns and just sort of putting them down in another context. Um, on what people can do to help, whether teachers or students, thank you for that question. I think it's a great one to end on. Um, we, we talked a little bit earlier about what mobilises political will in democracies and what mobilises political will is active citizen engagement. And so I would be asking students and teachers here and in, in the room beyond, uh, beyond this room to be uh, thinking about these issues and then making their voice heard on what the government here should do or for people who are from overseas, what your home government should do to invest in education and invest in the Global Partnership for Education. Uh, when we had our replenishment in 2014, uh, there was a country we were uh, waiting to pledge and there was a very active civil society campaign to uh, tweet the minister, to send material into the minister, to put pressure on the minister to make a decision. And I distinctly remember a conversation with that minister where the minister basically said to me, we're going to pledge, can you call them off now? Can you, can, can you make them stop? Um, uh, and to which I said, well, we'll see the pledge first. But, um, uh, and, and, and really, it's not, a, you know, it's not a tap, you can just turn on and off. But it just, just gives you an idea that actually... Um, you know, putting a petition around your school, getting involved in the social media campaign, having uh, write-in uh, campaigns to local members of parliament uh, when uh, government is formed after the election, having uh, write-in campaigns or visibility campaigns to the Minister for International Development, to the Foreign Minister, to the Prime Minister, uh, to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. These things actually do make a difference to where uh, money gets allocated and how it gets allocated. So I'd really just be advocating make a lot of noise uh, and having had the great delight of being at your school, I know that there are uh, hundreds of very competent, thoughtful young women there uh, who will be very good at that if they set their mind to it. <laughs>
Well, uh, I know it's been such a fascinating uh, talk and such a fascinating discussion. I know there are lots of people who still want to ask questions, and I apologize uh, with my slightly random approach to picking people. But um, um, I hope that you feel that we nonetheless had a very thorough discussion of a lot of the main issues raised, and a lot of good questions were asked and answered. Uh, and I think it's been rather a special evening. So I'd like once again to thank uh, both of our speakers. Thank you.